And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 220, aka season 3, episode 40. Uh, coming at you this week, podcast only, as MC is in Denver, uh, and I am still recovering. Uh, so you know what that means, another rousing edition of Richie Rich Reads the News. Uh, no call-in numbers this week because it is podcast only. And as I'm reading the news, minimal commentary uh, because I've been gone for two weeks. I've got a bunch of articles lined up and I just want to blast through them as quickly as I can. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see how many I get through. Um, as you may know, we took the last week off uh, because I was going to be at Forkfest uh, when we would normally record the show. Uh, and then I went back for a couple days of Porkfest. Um, and to be honest, uh, underwhelmed with both might, might not be back next year. Just, you know, was not what I was expecting, did not live up to the hype. Um, and talking to a few people, it could have been because of the days we chose to go. Uh, but at the same time, eh, first impressions are what they are. And my first impression of both was kind of me, you know, if it's, if it's just hanging out with friends in the wilderness, cool beans. Um, but I, you know, I hang out with friends anyway. Right. Like it's not like a different experience, uh, you know, to, to hang out with liberty minded individuals. Uh, the only difference is now there's a bunch of mosquitoes around and it's dark sometimes. And, you know, that's it. That, that was that was the only thing. Right. Like we, we can hang around uh, a table or couches or, you know, amongst ourselves. Um, but all of a sudden you put up chairs and a campfire and somehow that's a different experience. Um uh, and some people like it, I'm sure. Uh, maybe it's just not my thing because I'm not really outdoorsy. I don't mind the camping environment. Um, but I was uh, genuinely bored uh, for the short amount of time that we were there. Like, literally bored. Like, you know, I expected things I expected things to be happening and stuff going on. And everywhere I looked, it was like, well, that didn't seem interesting. And what was interesting, you know, wasn't interesting enough. And a lot of times there was just nothing. It was just bored. Just bored, bored, bored. Um, that being said, uh, the couple of things that we did do, I, I did enjoy. I got to see, uh, Ernest Hancock speak, which is always fun to see him live, meet the man in person finally. Um, and although I didn't personally introduce myself, I got to see Jeffrey Tucker speak, which was also, uh, very interesting. Uh, both, both well-spoken individuals and well-respected in the community. So that was, uh, probably the most exciting thing that happened while I was there. Otherwise, not much else going on. So let's get into it. Shall we? I will also say this as we get into it, uh, because of the amount of articles uh, and stories that I have lined up over the two weeks since we had the one week hiatus, uh, I'm not going to do the, the the headline roundup. I'm just going to do them as we go here. So you can check out the you know unfortunate Facebook group uh, if you want to catch all the headlines as for the ones that I may have missed or that I don't get to today because I doubt I'll get through all of them. But who knows? We'll see. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to announce them as I read them. Uh, that way, if the if there's some that do get missed, um, I'm not <laughs> I'm not overexciting you too much. So here we go. Headline: Stop treating the government with respect. It's become nothing but a weapon fought over by people who want to smash each other and you. The government in the United States has increasingly become a powerful weapon that two warring tribes repeatedly seize control of and then use against each other. For those of us who are averse to being smashed. It's long past time to consider the machinery of the state as nothing more than a bludgeon in the hands of a dangerous maniacs. Dangerous? Indeed. It's hard to beat the insight into the malicious heart of government offered by Representative Ted Liu on CNN in December. I would love to be able to regulate the content of speech, the California Democrat told CNN's Brianna Kalar. The First Amendment prevents me from doing so, and that's simply a function of the First Amendment. Liu obviously takes it for granted that many politicians would muzzle their enemies if it were permitted, and the only meddlesome legal structure, uh, strictures preventing them from enacting their dark desires. Those strictures no longer look so strict. New York State's Blue Tribe government last year repeatedly abused regulatory power in assaults against independent institutions. First, it sought to intimidate financial firms and insurance companies into breaking ties with organizations that advocate self-defense rights. This emulated the Obama administration's earlier Operation Choke Point scheme by which powerful bank regulatory agencies engaged in an effort of intimidation and threats to put legal industries they dislike out of business, according to John Berlau of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. 
New York officials followed up by threatening to declare truant any children attending private schools whose curricula didn't win state approval. For his part, Donald Trump, Red Tribe Hefe, demands unwavering personal loyalty. His promise to punish companies that defy his nationalistic economic schemes by moving production overseas. They will be taxed like never before, he vowed last summer of Harley-Davidson. And the president, who once described freedom of the press as frankly disgusting, doubled down on his predecessor's hostility to, to journalistic independence by threatening to retaliate against the critical Washington Post with antitrust actions, higher postage rates, and taxes on Amazon, which shares Jeff Bezos as its owner. Yes, politicians have misbehaved in the past, but pollsters continuously report that the dominant modern political factions hate each other to an unprecedented degree, and their chosen standard bearers are seeking to act on the loathings. It's enough to make you think government officials shouldn't be trusted with the powerful tools of the state, and to worry that the restraints intended to prevent misuse of those tools have broke down. We are at the end of the American project as the founders intended it. Political scientist Charles Murray wrote in 2015's By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. That project, as he saw it, was an effort to demonstrate that human beings can be left free as individuals, families, and communities to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they accord the same freedoms to everyone else. Given the U.S. government's intentional erosion of that ideal, however, Murray proposed mass civil disobedience against intrusive rules and overreaching officials. You have the right to defend yourself and others from state injustice, even when the government agents act ex officio and follow the law. Philosopher Jason Brennan wrote in the January 2019 issue of this, of this magazine, uh, coming from Reason, uh, innocent people have a right not to be subject to badly made, high-stake political decisions, he, add, he adds in his 2018 book, When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. Brennan doesn't suggest that overt resistance is risk-free, but he argues that it's morally justified and often better than knuckling under. Both Murray and Brennan see the government as frequently oppressive and out of control, but also as subject to coercion, or at least good kneecapping, if, if enough people are willing to gum up the works. Oh, excuse me, subject to correction, or at least a good kneecapping, if enough people are willing to gum up the works. Government is the Wizard of Oz, impotent to impose its will in the face of widespread refusal to comply with its rules, argues Murray. There's evidence that something as simple as shaming and social ostracism can effectively sap government agencies of energy, recruits, and resources. Long despised for its grabbiness and brutality, the IRS further alienated the public when it acted against Tea Party groups during the Obama years. Since then, it's lost funding, cut way back on its intrusive audits into American finances, and suffered deep demoralization. Almost a third of its remaining employees will be eligible to retire in the next year, and with morale plummeting, many of them will. ProPublica reported in December, uh, that's one-third fewer arm twisters, at least for a while, to be called upon by Liu and his colleagues, even as restrictions on their powers erode. Like the IRS, the FBI compounded the bad will it, in, it engendered with lethal misbehavior and the shenanigans of habitually dishonest crime labs by allowing itself to be drawn into contentious political issues, such as investigations into the bad conduct, real and alleged, of the major 2016 presidential candidates. Public support for the FBI has plunged, Time reported last year, and that skepticism appears to have affected juries, which are returning 11% fewer convictions in FBI-led cases than they did five years ago. Employment applications to the FBI dropped from 21,000 per year to 13,000 per year, the Washington Post has reported, necessitating a marketing campaign to haul in reluctant recruits. State and local police agencies, also tainted by news reports of brutality and bias, have likewise seen sharp drops in applicants, resulting in fewer officers to enforce the government's will. The number of full-time sworn officers per 1,000 U.S. residents had dropped from 2.42 in 1997 to 2.17 in 2016, the Post notes. Come to think of it, that just might leave little room in the hiring process for applicants who see Edward Snowden as a role model, or even as a starting point in the necessary process of sabotaging from within overpowerful and much misused agencies. 
Most of us will prefer quieter acts of disobedience, ignoring regulations and perhaps assisting others who get caught doing the same, as Murray recommends. We might also choose to respond to the excess of government agents as we would to that those of any other thugs, without offering undeserved deference, as Brennan suggests. We could refuse private services to state employees, damage government property, dox officials, and even directly intervene in incidents of oppressive actions. There's no reason to show respect to a system that sees us as nothing more than enemies to be smashed. Uh, end of the article. As I said previously, uh, I was at uh, Porkfest uh, for a couple of days and I did get to see Jeffrey Tucker speak. And one of the most poignant things that he said in his speech, which is unfortunately sad, is that we currently live in the world where we exist at the pleasure of the state. Um, for any reason and without any warning, uh, you can be kidnapped, caged, or killed um, by state agents, right? And and for <laughs> for the luck uh, that befalls you, uh, even those of us, uh, those of you who try to keep your head down and you know just eke on by, right? With all the um, warrantless searches and the wrong, the the no knock raids that end up at the wrong house, even those who think they should be. Uh, you know, immune from such behavior, find themselves in the crosshairs. So it's unfortunate that we live uh, in a world, in a society where it is true. Uh, we, we are at the, we, you know, we, we exist at the pleasure of the state um, that we should resist and we should fight back uh, and have the, you know, the moral right to do so. Um, and hopefully soon, you know, the, the duty uh, to resist and to fight back um, and not have that be frowned upon or looked down, um, even within the the liberty community, uh, as it were, that th- those acts of, of heroism and bravery um, be heralded as opposed to uh, put down, regardless regardless of the consequences. Right? Those those that choose to fight back should be should be raised up, um, not shunned uh, when they do by by the by by a community that should support them um, in those actions, regardless of whether or not uh, the individual community members would take such action. Um, but yeah, as long as, as long as, you know, we live in a, in a society where they can come after us uh, at a whim, whenever they please, for whatever the reason they choose and get away with it, even if it's a mistake, um, there's, there's, there's no obligation uh, whatsoever to follow the rules, do what they say, um, and like the article title said, to treat them with respect at all. They, they, they haven't earned it. They don't deserve it. And until that behavior changes and they you know fail to exist, um, individual members of their organized gang deserve none of that either, regardless of their station and rank uh, in that gang. Right. Like, you know, people always tell me like, oh, what, you don't like cops? I'm like, no, I don't. And I also don't like public school teachers either. Right, like they're they're not immune. Uh, if you're getting a paycheck uh, from the state and you're a member of that gang, and and at one point I don't know how I feel about this anymore. I need to reflect a little bit on it. But voters, right? People, you know, people who are ingrained in that system um, and vote to keep it around and vote to take my rights and liberties away and pretend to pass that off uh, to organized officials and representatives, like they they don't deserve my respect either. Like why would I? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think they do, which, you know, and which brings me to this next article, uh, that I like because it's, you know, it's an act of resistance, um, in so far as it's, you know, the people fighting back and doing what is right as opposed to doing what they're told. So here we go. Headline victory. A jury refuses to convict activists for giving water to migrants. A jury refuses to convict activist Scott Daniel Warren this week on charges he committed conspiracy for leaving out water for migrant families. A humanitarian volunteer and college professor Scott Warren was arrested last year by Border Patrol for leaving out water for migrants. Warren was charged with two counts of harboring illegal aliens and one count of conspiracy to transport and harbor illegal aliens. For the last year, he was staring down the possibility of being thrown in a cage for 20 years for giving thirsty people water. 
However, this week, a jury refused to convict the man for simply giving water to those in need. Today, it remains as necessary as ever for local residents and humanitarian aid volunteers to stand in solidarity with migrants and refugees. And we must also stand for our families, friends, and neighbors in the very land itself more threatened by the militarization of our borderland communities, Warren said, outside the courthouse on Tuesday. Uh, According to a report from The Guardian, jurors said on Monday that they could not reach a consensus on the charges against Warren, but a federal judge told them to keep deliberating. They were still deadlocked on Tuesday and ultimately dismissed. Even the federal government acknowledges that Warren did nothing other than give food and water to people, yet they are pursuing this insane sentence anyway. As The Guardian reported last month, a few months later, prosecutors charged Warren with several counts of one of those offenses, conspiracy to transport and harbor migrants, a federal felony that could land Warren in prison for 20 years. Prosecutors rarely tap this charge. Even Sessions appeared to recognize that harboring cases are not big-ticket items. His April 2017 memo, which is still in force despite Trump ushering him out of the Justice Department, recommends targeting people who helped at least three people or where someone was injured. Prosecutors aren't alleging either against Warren. Instead, court records paint him as a saintly border patrol agent. As instead, court records paint him as saintly. Border Patrol agents, prosecutors claim, saw Warren arrive at a remote desert location called The Barn. There he encountered two people fitting the descriptions of lost illegal aliens. The two men, both of whom allegedly entered the United States clandestinely, didn't know Warren and he didn't help them get to the barn. But once he met them there, Warren is said to have given them food, water, beds, and clean clothes for three days. Federal prosecutors don't allege anything more sinister. Suspiciously, this arrest happened just hours after Border Patrol was criticized by the organization that Warren works with, No More Deaths. Among various outreach efforts that the group is involved in, they are also known for leaving behind food and water for immigrants crossing the border. Last year, No More Deaths released a report showing that 3,856 gallons of water were destroyed by Border Patrol agents over a four-year period. The report included video footage of border agents kicking over gallons of water and pouring them out. We document how Border Patrol agents engage in widespread vandalism of gallons of water left for border crossers and routinely interfere with other humanitarian aid efforts in rugged and remote areas of the borderlands. No more deaths said in a press release. Just after the press conference when these videos were released, Warren was arrested while providing two immigrants with food and water at The Barn. Border Patrol apparently had the safe house under surveillance and decided to raid the location just hours after the press conference that exposed their cruelty. After finding their way to the barn, Warren met met them outside and gave them food and water for approximately three days. One of the migrants said that Warren took care of them in the barn by giving them food, water, beds, and clean clothes. The charges against Warren stated... Warren's attorney, Billy Walker, pointed out that Warren's only crime was helping people survive. We don't smuggle them. We don't do anything to help them enter the United States. We do nothing illegal. This place that they raided is not in the middle of the desert. It's not hidden anywhere. It's in the city of Ajo, and it's been used for a long time not to help smuggle migrants, but to give medical care and food and water, Walker told AZ Central. Volunteer Caitlin Danen said that the organization believes that this arrest was in retaliation for speaking out against the harsh practices of the Border Patrol. It felt retaliatory in that it occurred less than eight hours after our press conference releasing releasing these findings that implicated Border Patrol. But we can't confirm that with certainty. We see an escalation in the criminalization of humanitarian aid workers, and especially in the West Desert part of Arizona, which sees almost half of the recovered human remains that are found in Arizona. There's a true danger there, and it's an extremely important place for us to do work, Danan said. A report from The Intercept detailed how federal agencies have been building a case against these organizations for years, and revealed text messages that were sent between agents during the raid. Sadly, Warren is not the first activist to get arrested for helping people survive the arduous journey across the border. In fact, eight other humanitarian workers, all from No More Deaths, are also facing similar charges from from previous encounters with Border Patrol agents. This is a very legitimate need for organization like No More Deaths because, as their name implies, many people have lost their lives while crossing the border. 
Attacking a group like this is the equivalent of attacking a medic on a battlefield. While the true extent of death toll is unknown, a report from USA Today found that well over 7,209 lives have been lost in the past 20 years. The report indicated that the actual number is likely far higher because federal authorities largely fail to count border crossers when their remains are recovered by local authorities and even local counts are often incomplete. An untold number of people lose their lives attempting to cross borders in search of better lives or to reunite with family members and loved ones who live on the other side. Those who manage to survive the trip must live in constant fear of being kidnapped and caged in facilities that are often worse than prisons before being dumped off in a place they try to escape. And this is if they are lucky. The arguments against an open immigration policy ignored this very real human cost while instead focusing on imaginary scenarios, much of which have been proven false. For example, a series of studies have indicated that immigrants, immigration does not increase crime and that immigrants are actually far less to commit violent crimes than native-born citizens. Another study revealed that the increased level of immigration do not increase terrorism. Meanwhile, it has been found that you are at least eight times more likely to be killed by a police officer than a terrorist. According to the Guardian, Glenn McCormick, a spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona, declined to comment on whether Warren would face another trial. The judge set a July 2nd status hearing for the defense and prosecution. Uh, End of the article. What more can be said? Uh, I think jury notification is a great thing. Um, it's a great form of activism if you want to be involved in the system. Um, it's one it, It's one of the few um, that I'm okay with, I guess. Because, uh, again, not, not a big fan of voting or a lot of the stuff people do. Um, even the protesting, right? Like I said, uh, unless it's a tax protest, why bother? Um but it's also a form of activism that I don't want to participate in because the only way to get on the juror roll is to like intricate yourself into the state system. And I don't want to be a part of that system in any form uh, to get on that role. So for those of you that are you know already involved uh, in the state system, uh, and, you know by either being a registered voter or a driver's license carrier, whatever it takes in your state to get on the jury roll, um, please look, look into jury notification and don't prosecute people doing good things. Um, and don't prosecute people doing not bad things either, right? Like, you know, don't definitely don't prosecute people or convict people who are doing good things. Um, but people who are just harming themselves or aren't harming others, you know, the, the whole no victim, no crime thing. If you're, you know, if you get stuck with one of those cases and they're not, there's no, uh, victim and no rights violation, uh, don't, don't convict that person either. <laughs> right. Like that's the, that's the whole point. They, they, the, the state can come down and waste as much time as they want. But if you're the one jury on there that won't convict, uh, because it would be immoral to do so, uh, by all means, please do more power to those people, uh, credit where credit is due. Just unfortunately, uh, for me, I don't want to get involved in the system to put myself in that position. Just personal choices. We all make them, uh, moving on. Why the amorality of markets is preferable to the immorality of coercion. Uh, the market is a mechanism and is neither wise nor moral. Liberty and voluntary relationships evoke the best in individuals and therefore society. That makes it painful to see willing arrangements blamed for virtually everything someone can think to object to in favor of coercion of some by others via government for some unattainable utopian vision. But why are unattainable utopian visions more attractive to so many more people than liberty? which can achieve the best society that is actually attainable. Uh, Leonard Reed considered that issue carefully and offered useful insights in his Free Market Disciplines uh, on the 50th anniversary of Let Freedom Reign, in which it appeared it is worth reconsidering. Reed showed that liberty's failure to gain more adherence than utopian statism can be, in part, traced to the fact that it is the ends envisioned rather than the means involved that often motivate people. Unlike utopian visions, which gloss over grubby, weird-world problems of of not just implementation, but internal contradictions, freedom, an amoral servant, cannot be proven to have no objectionable results to anyone that can saddle liberty with an inspirational deficit. However, attributing disliked results to market misplaces blame. Uh, 
Therefore, restricting voluntary arrangements beyond preventing the use of force and fraud cannot solve the real problems. However, such efforts can hobble the market's ability to coordinate people mutually beneficial productive efforts, causing a great deal of harm through misguided attempts to accomplish good. Leonard Reed's Thoughts on the Matter The free market is the only mechanism that can sensibly, logically, intelligently discipline production and consumption. For it is only when the market is free that economic calculation is possible. Free pricing is the key. But it is necessary to recognize the limitations of the free market. The market is a mechanism and thus it is wholly lacking in moral and spiritual suasions. It embodies no coercive force whatsoever. Given the society of freely choosing individuals, the market is that which exists as a consequence. It is a mechanism that is otherwise non-definitive. It is the procession of economic events that occur when authoritarianism is absent. In a word, the free market is individual desires speaking in exchange terms. When the desires of people are depraved, a free market will accommodate the depravity, and it will accommodate excellence with equal alacrity. It is a servant alike to good and evil. It is because the free market serves evil as well as good that many people think they can rid society of evil by slaying this faithful, amoral servant. This is comparable to breaking the mirror so that we won't have to see the reflection of what we really are. The market is but a response to, a mirror of, our desires. Instead of cursing evil, stay out of the market for it. The evil will cease to the extent we cease patronizing it. Trying to rid ourselves of trash by running the government for morality laws is like trying to minimize the effects of inflation by wage, price, and other controls. Both destroy the market, that is, the reflection of ourselves, attempts not to see ourselves as we are. To slay this faithful, amoral servant is to blindfold, deceive, and hoodwink ourselves. Denying the market is to erase the best points of reference man can have. The market is a mechanism, and it is neither wise nor moral. The market is an obstacle course. Before I can pursue my bent or aptitude or obsession, I must gain an adequate voluntary approval or assent. My own aspirations, regardless of how determined or lofty or depraved, do not control the verdict. What these others will put in willing exchange for my offering spells my success or failure, allows me to pursue my bent or not. Eventually, in a free society, the junk goes to the junk heap, and the achievements are rewarded. I believe that anyone should follow his star, but let him do so with his own resources or with such resources as others will voluntarily supply. That is to say that I believe in the market, a tough disciplinary mechanism. An individual in the free market considers how much of his own property he is willing to put on the line. The free market gives short shrift to projects that are at or near the bottom of individual preferences. Reed saw that defenders of liberty must face that facts, that markets are enabled to people to do whatever they wish better, i.e. that it is a moral servant. It cannot be relied upon to produce only good and inspirational things, but when they better enable doing ill, they do so only by reflecting what some people desire. If we reform ourselves, markets would do no such harm, and Leonard Reed had great faith such improvements were possible. In contrast, coercively reforming us does not eliminate the cause of such harm, and so does little to actually stop it. But it does throw away the amoral servant of the greater good that cannot be accomplished through its any other means. Leonard Reed recognizes that liberty, the voluntary arrangements that are created when rights to ourselves and our production are protected, provides the means of achieving what is actually achievable in advancing society. As we develop ourselves, we each have more to offer others. That, plus what freedom has historically accomplished beyond anyone's ability to envision, extends to further as yet unknown possibilities. We're at the heart of his inspirational vision. To follow in Leonard Reed's path towards increased liberty, we too must develop our ability to see the unseen and often unimagined good that can only be accomplished by freeing people's ability to peacefully create and innovate. We must also be able to see the inherent failings of coercion. With such binocular vision, we can still recognize liberty as far more inspirational than any statist pipe dream. Uh, end of the article. And this is this is another reason why I harp so much on um, the how things get done, right? The the mechanism behind the 
good, you know, slash amoral intentions of people doing things, right? Like businesses started, um, social justice goals, uh, you know, any, any type of uh, movement that people want to get behind. Um, my, my biggest question always comes down to uh, the how, right? I may not agree with the what or the why uh, of what you're doing, but I will not stand in your way or disparage you for what you are attempting to do uh, until we discuss the how you plan on doing it, right? Um, and, and, and that's the most important thing to me. Right, you you can try all you want to persuade people to get behind your plan to do what you want. Uh, if you want to, to save the environment, by all means, persuasion is the key. Um, but forcing private property owners from you know doing what they do uh, is is never going to be a mechanism of choice uh, for me. And uh, you know, I also in the marketplace, I also have you know the opportunity to pick and choose uh, you know service and product providers. Um, based on those belief systems, like one of the, uh, where we went out to breakfast, uh, this morning, um, and you know, right on, uh, on top of the, the menu area, it said like, you know, in order to save the turtles, uh, we'll no longer be offering plastic straws, uh, paper straws will be available upon request. And I was immediately turned off, right? I don't, paper straws are stupid. Uh, plastic straws are great. Um, and personally, I don't give a damn about the, about the turtles (laughs) and call me bad or whatever you want. Um, but my point is I was immediately turned off, um, by, you know, this, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say virtue signaling, uh, at its, at its worst, uh, when it comes to this particular issue. Um, and my response was, I'm already not digging this restaurant. It was, it was, you know, if, if we had, if we didn't have other things to do, um, it could have been a walkout moment. Um, like I don't want to support a kind of place that does not provide this option right now. I'm glad that it's not a state mandate. I'm glad that it's not a law that was passed, you know, banning them from providing such, uh, accommodations. Um, but I still don't support, uh, those service providers that do right. Like, you know, if, if, you know, same with, uh, plastic bags and all the nonsense, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. If you don't want to offer it, um, you know, by all means, don't offer it. I'll take what I can get, or I uh, won't shop there anymore. Um, and to put it on the menu, to put it on the menu as like we're doing something for the environment and for the turtles, um, when they're really not, uh, was was off-putting to me uh, because I don't I don't support it. Um, but we ate there anyway, and oddly enough, uh, the the beverage that we ordered was delivered uh, with a plastic straw without a request for a straw at all. So, so not only do they go against, uh, well, <laughs> they stated on the menu, um, you know, they, they, there was like no care in the world, not even a mention of it. So I was, I was glad to see that. Um, and I, I felt a little bit better about it. You know, just if, if you want to give me, if you want to, uh, you know, meet consumer demand by all means, please do it. Uh, but I'm not demanding that. Um, but again, the, the market is a, is an amoral system. So uh, we, we don't need to agree on that particular position for us to trade, uh, with each other. And, you know, because there's no law preventing one or the other, uh, everything worked out just fine. But also in the marketplace, I have a right to disagree and not patronize, right? If, if you support causes that I'm against, uh, I don't have to shop there. I don't have to go there. I don't have to, I don't have to trade with you, um, at all. And that, you know, that goes across the board and that's why the market is a wonderful place, uh, to, to let these things shine through because, you know, you, you put out your position, right? The, the bakers who don't want to bake cakes for gay couples, uh, and people then have a choice. They go, Oh no, this, this guy's kind of a bigot. Like we don't need, we don't need to buy straight cakes from him either, unless he's a really good baker and you go like, well, he's the best we can get and he's affordable. So let's, you know, let's put the moral aspect to the side, uh, and, you know, make a trade for the you know, mutual benefit of both parties, regardless, uh, regardless of, of the moral stances that everyone has. And I think that's important, uh, because especially in the, especially in the social justice world, um, you know, despite my, uh, you know, disappointment with the, the 
recording on the breakfast menu, I was like, well, let's, let's try the food. Let's see how good the food is first. Right. Like I'm not, it wasn't necessarily a walkout moment, even though it was in consideration, uh, because I, I don't like supporting stupid. Um, and to me that was, um, but in the, in the area of social justice, where every little position that you disagree with is grounds for a boycott, um, <laughs> it's, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to get, uh, any sort of trade going, um, when, when every, when individuals disagree on so many levels, there's no way that your personal position is hundred percent in alignment with anybody's corporate position, uh, or, you know, small mom and pop shops in with the owner's positions, right? Like that's just not going to happen. So unless you're going to insulate yourself and be 100% self-sufficient, uh, leaving off the land, you're going to end up trading people trading with people with whom you disagree on any number of things. Uh, and that should not stop the trade from occurring. Uh, again, some things, some beliefs being held more strongly than others, I, you know, but for the, the social justice uh, people out there, uh, a lot of their beliefs are so extreme on so many levels that like, I don't know how, I don't know how they do it. Right. <laughs> There's a little picture of, you know, like the, the, the people with the communist flag enjoying a, a meal at McDonald's and chatting on their iPhones. Right. It's like, you know, when, uh, taking a break from protesting capitalism to enjoy some of the fruits of <laughs> fruits of its, uh, of its uh, existence. Uh, and just, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, uh, so to let, to allow that to get in the way is again, another stupid thing. Um, but yeah, it's the, the beautiful thing about the market is it doesn't care, um, right or wrong. It, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, the, the conversation I had with MC a couple of weeks ago, however brief it was, uh, about the John Wick universe where, you know, things were allowed or accepted in that universe that would seem odd to us. is just another market transaction, right? Murder for hire, you know, you know all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, if there, it, it's, it's the market doesn't care. It's a bad thing. Yes. Um, but it, it will exist regardless and already does exist. Um, and it's not a market failure that it does. It's a failure of, you know, humanity and compassion, whatever you want to, whatever labels you want to throw on that. Um, the market just provides the mechanism for that exchange to occur. And that's should always be looked at as a good thing. Uh, moving on. Speaking of markets, uh, the answer to the social media conundrum will not come from government. Uh, this one's a couple weeks old. This was earlier, like last week, well, I mean, yeah, a little over a week ago. This week, YouTube chose to ban the channel of right-of-center comedian Steven Crowder. This situation is the same as when Twitter banned Milo Yiannopoulos or Facebook banned Louis Farrakhan. In other cases, YouTube is not deleting accounts, but simply demonetizing them so that creators can no longer support themselves. Large-scale platforms like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter however inadvertently sowed the seed of their own destruction and incentivized the creation and ultimate decentralization of media. On one hand, the algorithms of the biggest players favor sensational and bombastic users who play on people's baser instincts. Yet the moment those same users test the limits of our public discourse, social media platforms are criticized for being the arbiters of what is and is not acceptable. However, it's a mistake to think that the people the policies of technology companies will fix these problems. The problems are much deeper than that, and all the solutions reside in viewers and American citizens choosing to reward the producers of good content instead of the bad. Now, interjection, the market. Uh, in the backdrop here, there is undeniable coarsening of our political rhetoric, which in inevitably leads to platforms like Facebook choosing to censor or for people to begin clamoring for one legislative fix or another. If this were a question of what government should do, I could provide the same answers as the framers of the Constitution and the liberal tradition generally. It is not for the government to decide. What we need is maximum freedom to speak in whatever forms that takes. But with social media, we're dealing with a different animal. Institutions that are slowly migrating themselves from one open platforms, excuse me, slowly migrating themselves from open platforms to become full-scale media platforms that requires curation. And here the problem begins. Who is to solve them? That has to be within the realm of the stakeholders in the platform themselves. No one has a human right to access them. That is, this is not a First Amendment issue. 
It is a question of management. Management is fallible. It is a process of discerning best practices to meet audience demand, and that requires careful thinking about trade-offs. On a deeper level, it is a question for all of us to manage ourselves in a civil way that is consistent with the kind of society we want to live in. The future of free speech depends not on laws, but on America's commitment to civility. Consciously restricting our own expression for the sake of others, civility is a form of private governance, a phrase economist Edward Stringham is fond of using. As we lose both free speech and civility, we lose our democracy. Judge, judge Learned Hand observed over 70 years ago, Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. No constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. America's free speech rights are among the most protective in the world. We should take pride in them, but we must also protect them through the decisions we make every day. That our nation protects free speech means that our laws permit a wide range of expression, even when it's seditious, offensive, or false. This reflects a good and noble principle, but the practical reality is that public toleration of dangerous or offensive speech is only finite. If the public square becomes increasingly inhospitable, Americans will demand, as they already have, that the government more strictly regulate speech. Public support for free speech depends on how we use our freedom of expression each day. Uh, pseudonymous blogger Scott Alexander formulates this excuse me. Pseudonymous blogger Scott Alexander formulates the dynamic thus. Every time we invoke free speech to justify some unpopular idea, the unpopular idea becomes a little more tolerated, and free speech becomes a little less popular. Free speech is unpopular, especially among young people. A problematic notion considering the future of this constitutional principle depends on them. In one study, fewer than half of 18 to 21-year-olds agree that people should be free to voice nonviolent opinions if those opinions were offensive to minorities. Another study of American college students showed a sharp decrease in the portion of students who think the right to freedom of speech is secure, down to 64% from this year from 73% in 2016. These trends reveal the urgency of renewing our country's commitment to freedom of speech, but also the responsibilities that come with that freedom. Those committed to freedom of speech must recognize that, valuable as it is, the principle is not costless. But at least historically, we have decided as a nation that the benefits of this freedom outweighs the cost of offensive and harmful speech. But in our divided and violent era, people, even classical liberals, are concluding that cost of offensive and violent speech are too great to bear. A free society can function without strict governmental restraints only when individuals exercise self-restraint. In the context of our public discourse, civility cons constitutes this self-restraint. Edmund Burke, in his Thoughts and Details on Scarcity, wrote, Statesmen ought to know the different departments of things, what belongs to law, and what manner alone can regulate. To these, great politicians may give a leaning, but they cannot give a law. America continues to tolerate more objectionable speech than other countries. We are right to do so. With freedom comes responsibility, and we must wield our freedoms wisely. For this tolerance and the principle of free speech that underlies it, to survive, we must not depend on the nine robed oracles working at First Street Congress or social media giants to be the arbiters. To address this complicated problem, we must rely on innovation, diversification, decentralization, settled cultural norms, and individual discipline, which is to say we must rely on ourselves. Uh, end of the article. Uh, and when it comes to the big, you know, de-platforming of all these things, um, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go back because I heard him speak um, at the Alt Expo at Porkfest. Uh, Ernie Hancock's big project of getting liberty-minded individuals off of these big platforms, but providing uh, another decentralized platform for them slash us to migrate to. Um, and it, it, it's because it's because again, you know, when you rely on the Facebooks, the YouTubes, uh, the Twitters, you know, to to uh, get to your audience, to communicate with your audience, um, you, you you exist at the pleasure of those companies, uh, just as much as you may exist at the pleasure of the state uh, in your in your regular you know normal life. And if you, if they're deplatforming people for um, 
political positions, uh, views on things, you know, outright speech, well, then it's it's at their pleasure and at their whim, uh, and and they have the right to do so. Um, but that doesn't mean that they slash we uh, need to put up with it, right? The 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 people who are providing uh, freedom oriented, liberty oriented content, we should be free to go wherever we damn well please, uh, you know, so long as we are accepted there. And one of the beautiful things about the decentralized plan uh, is that. You can host it yourself. You can host it for others. Uh, other people can host your stuff um, if they so choose. Uh, and then if we're all networked together, um, it you know as long as you're hosting your own, that 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 will never disappear from the network. You don't have to worry about uh, being deplatformed by Facebook or YouTube or whatever because your stuff is available. You know it's like file sharing, right? As long as you host the file. It's available for everyone to access, and once you stop hosting it, if you choose to, um, it's like pulling it down yourself, or uh, you know, allowing someone else to host it for you, and, and the circle goes round and round. Um, and you know, one of the points he made during his speech was that with the the cost effectiveness of storage space and the decreasing cost of source storage space as we move forward, um, the the overall cost uh, of of you know keeping your own stuff on file. Uh, in this file sharing network is going to be relatively low and you can put lots of stuff on very, on very cheap space at this point, And it's only going to get cheaper going forward. The only difficulty is the distribution mechanism, right? That was previously Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and all that, um, is going to change to that of a decentralized network, um, that we voluntarily enter into, right? You, you, you put your drive on the node, uh, and all of a sudden, your stuff's out there, and you can you know keep other people's stuff on yours if you want to. So it's 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 us, it's ourselves, you know, being responsible for our content uh, and not relying on the big tech companies to spread our message or the individual messages that we're trying to spread. And if we can do that, then we can put those place those you know businesses, uh, you know, in our in our rearview mirror, so to speak, as we leave them behind and move forward. Um, the other thing I liked from his speech is the fact that, you know, he wants to create a communications, um, that the government can't see, has no way to access and, and can't monitor. So that'll be interesting as well. Just throwing that thought out there, not really related to the article, but it, it again, it's, it's not going to come from regulation and it's obviously not going to come from these, uh, individual companies who have different goals and different ideals, um, than we do. They're going to do their best to stifle it and move their agenda forward um, and not let the, the, you know, the agenda of freedom and liberty reach the masses. So it's going to, it's going to rely on us to spread the word as best we can amongst ourselves until we can build that network where we're able to expand to those masses as well. Moving on. All right. Headline, the folly of fully automated luxury communism. The New York Times has obfuscated about the reality of communism since the days of Walter Durante. An op-ed published on Tuesday titled, The World is a Mess, We Need Fully Automated Luxury Communism, adds another chapter to this decades-long trend. The article is a lengthy excerpt from Aaron Bastani's forthcoming book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, A Manifesto. The phrase, fully automated luxury communism, is another example of the left's ongoing campaign to affiliate socialism with anything except real-life socialist societies. Bastani's attempt to associate Marxism, which dug the graves of 100 million people in less than a century, with its cognitively positive term echoes British viral celebrity Ash Sakar's efforts to brand her ideology fun communism, or even the young Father Robert Sirichow's naive belief that under socialism, we'll all shop at Gucci. Yet linking socialism, which decimated the economy and physical environment of numerous nations by eliminating the price mechanism with luxury, borders on the Orwellian. Bastani begins with the tale of the cultured beef burger, a lab-grown vegetarian food that tastes like meat without requiring as many greenhouse gas emissions or the death of any animal. The first patty, underwritten by Google co-founder Sergey Brin, cost $325,000. But the meat substitute currently costs $50 a burger, and Bastani predicts, within a decade, they will probably be more affordable than even the cheapest barbecue staples of today. 
Bostani's assertion is almost certainly correct. Most people would see this as a triumph of the free market. A capitalist tycoon financed a socially beneficial product whose price will fall through mass production and supply and demand. This is the story of capitalism. As Marion L. Tupi noted at humanprogress.org between 1979 and 2015, the number of hours the average person had to work to purchase household appliances, exercise equipment, and televisions fell between 52 and 96% each. This market reality caused Stephen Moore and Julian Simon of the Cato Institute to call the 20th century the greatest century that ever was. The economist Joseph Schumpeter described the modus operandi of prosperity. The capitalist engine is first and last an engine of mass production, which unavoidably also means production for the masses, he wrote. The capitalist achievement does not typically consist in providing more silk stockings for queens, but in bringing them within reach of factory girls in return for steadily decreasing amounts of effort. Bastani sees successive waves of economic advancement curing technological unemployment, global poverty, societal aging, climate change, resource scarcity, and other social ills. He sees this embedded in the very essence of humanity, which is to constantly build new worlds. He is right. From mastering agriculture to forging tools out of bronze and iron to revolutionizing life through industrial and information technology, the human race has continually developed new ways to provide for an ever-growing population with fewer resources and less conflict. In our day, this has evolved into a harmonious process. The financial industry loans money to budding entrepreneurs who lack the capital to bring their dreams to life. They, in turn, provide jobs for their local communities. All beneficiaries use the profits to care for their families, where they raise the next generation of funders, dreamers, and doers. Yet Bastani pivots, claiming that the system has plunged the world into a crisis, only somewhat less pressing than the Black Death, Brave New World, or Hell in the painting of Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, we inhabit a world of low, of low growth, low productivity, and low wages, of climate breakdown and the collapse of democratic politics, a world where billions, mostly in the global south, live in poverty, a world defined by inequality. Whoever wrote these words lives in a world of fantasy. In the real world, candidates for UK Prime Minister hail America's roaring GDP growth, made possible by tax cuts and deregulation. Inequality has flattened, thanks in part to a global recession. The number of democracies at a post-war high and billions, mostly in the global south, have escaped poverty, thanks to adopting elements of a market economy. Over the last 25 years, total global inequality declined for the first time since the Industrial Revolution, noted Anna Ravinga and uh, Megan Dooley of the Brookings Institution, as poor countries became richer. Again, another smashing success for the free market. While Bostani admits capitalism created the newly emerging abundance, he somehow believes free enterprise artificially restricts access. A system where things are products produced only for profit, capitalism seeks to ration resources to ensure returns. Just like today's companies of the future, just like today's companies of the future will form monopolies and seek rents. The result will be imposed scarcity where there's not enough food, healthcare, or energy to go around. If Bastani's diagnosis is flawed, his prescription is worse. We have to go beyond capitalism, a prospect he admits some may consider unwholesome. The details of his vision are scarce in this op-ed. He lists merely reducing the global carbon footprint, increasing automation, and establishing socialized care. One may note it's precisely national health systems that ration resources. In these terms, his philosophy sounds a little more like revolutionary than that of Silicon Valley titans, who propose a universal basic income to cure the alleged imminent wave of automation-fueled unemployment. Bastani's fully automated luxury communism innovates only in its rhetorical excess, and he admits his FALC is utopian in horizon. Utopian visions are the one product communist societies never lacked. Bread, justice, and inalienable rights were in shorter supply. According to Bastani's own op-ed, the system that brought the human race from handfuls of ignorant tribes huddling in caves to the most technologically advanced point in the world history is the free market. This process, capitalism, free enterprise, call it what you will, maximized human freedom and human well-being. It generated the emerging abundance that allows for the voluntary redistribution of wealth, especially in societies informed by religious principles like the golden rule and human dignity. 
It is this system and these principles that galvanized human flourishing, and it is among them that Bastanis and others should seek the answers for humanity's future, not in an aesthetic economic philosophy whose Oh, excuse me, not in an atheistic economic philosophy whose greatest technological innovation related to imprisonment, internal surveillance, and industrial-scale extermination at home and abroad. End of the article. Aside from the religious bent uh, toward the end there, I'm, I'm almost in full agreement with this article entirely. I mean, this, this is one of the difficulties when dealing with uh, statist and communist and socialist and the ilk is the belief that somehow uh, believing in capitalism means that the market is going to be foisted upon them against their will, right? When when I describe myself as an anarchist or uh, anarcho-capitalist, um, people get hung up on the word capitalism uh, as as if it's a bad thing, like it means you know, worker oppression and all that other nonsense. And it's difficult to convince them that it, it has no such connotation and that's all in their head. Um, because to me, the, the reason why if we eliminate the state, uh, the anarcho-capitalist model will win out is that it's simple voluntary exchanges between consenting people, right? There's, there's no foisting upon there. Nothing needs to be forced. It's what I believe people will naturally do uh, given the freedom to do so. And if someone tries to take away that freedom, well, then that's a, that's a different story entirely. Um, but you don't need, you don't need to force capitalism on anybody. You just, you remove all other restrictions, all other impediments to free exchange and voluntary interaction. Um, and you know, my version of capitalism is what remains. It's, it's the interaction between them, the trade, the wanting to better yourself and finding ways to do it, the taking a job if you're unable to, you know, to, to, forage the land or farm or, you know, whatever you, you know, whatever you want to do. And it's in, you know, and it doesn't need to be a top down approach. It's not even a bottom up approach. It's, it's like an equal across the board approach, uh, to everything. It's just people going about their own business, uh, unimpeded, you know, unless that business is, um, you know, detrimental to the rights of another, in which case, you know, force can be used. I don't care, but it's just weird. Uh, to me that every, that, you know, when, when dealing with these people, they're so stuck in what they want to see as a utopian fantasy, um, that they don't realize that the, the easiest, the, the easiest and most efficient way to get there, even if that's what their goal is, is through the capitalist mechanism, right? The, the, the mechanism of a voluntary exchange. And when they decide that they want to, you know, play a game of less win-win and more win-lose or in, you know, lose-lose for that matter, uh, by going towards a socialistic or a communistic or a government, you know, hierarchical approach to things. Um, they, they, they do their own, they do a disservice to themselves. Uh, they, they don't own up to the fact that, you know, they, the way that they want to do it puts others in harm's way, puts others at a loss, uh, and then they never they never do get their goal, right? Fully automated luxury communism, uh, whatever that means. I'm, I'm actually intrigued by it, I'll be honest. Uh, I, <laughs> I kind of want to read the book uh, just a little bit, um, but I also don't want to pay for it. So I'm going to see if we can find the author Yam, to, you know, uh, gift us a copy because why not, right? If it's, if it's luxury communism you're looking for, um, that book should not be scarce and should be you know, relative, the cost of it and price of it should approach zero. Uh, so if I can find it, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll look into it. I doubt, I doubt I'll take the effort beyond reading this article about it. Um, but yeah, like even, you know, even, even in that world, uh, you know, that, that term, that world that they want to live in can't come about through communistic means, through socialist means. It can't, it can't happen. The only luxury aspect of it comes from the fact that they're going to be able to leech off of, you know, capital, capital productivity, uh, that has existed to that point. And then it's all downhill from there. Uh, if they eliminate the capitalist mechanism for creating that luxury and for creating that wealth, there's just, there's just no getting around that. Um, and if, you know, I, I haven't read a lot of Marx, but the, the ones that talk about it, they fully understand that in order to get to socialism and communism of that stage of society, uh, you have to go through the, the building phase of, of a capitalist economy to get all that wealth created uh, before it can be redistributed and taken away from those who otherwise uh, own it, 
right? You, you have to you have to steal from the producers uh, in order to provide for everyone, uh, or right? You you just let the voluntary exchange take place. You get rid of the state. You get rid of the rules and regulations preventing people from voluntarily interacting with each other. And all of a sudden, you know, you get closer to a world where um, philanthropy, for that matter, of the very wealthy can help raise those lower tiers up. You know, the, the, the people who are in extreme poverty uh, can be assisted, can be helped, can be guided. Um, but that's not going to happen if you bring everyone down to that level. Where am I at all time? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to stop there because that's just about the perfect time to end this and wrap this up. Uh, so thank you very much for listening, everybody. Uh, you know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, uh, do it through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Uh, hopefully we'll be doing a regular show with me and MC next week. Um, hopefully he'll be, you know, available for that. But right now he's, like I said, in Denver. Um, and I'll be around next week regardless. So if he's not available, we do another one of these. Richie Rich reads the news. Uh, but thank you very much for listening to this one and putting up with it. Uh, talk to y'all next week. Peace.